This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au This morning we're talking about, uh, in our Better Together series, the fact that we are under authority. And as you think about the different types of organisations and institutions in our culture that are particularly authoritarian, the organization that comes to mind most for me are our defense forces, the Army, the Navy, and the um, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Uh, Our defense forces, there are massively hierarchical authoritarian organizations. Other people might throw government or even big business and, and even churches, certain versions of churches, into that category of authoritarian institutions. The problem is we live in a vastly anti-authoritarian culture, particularly here in the inner West, particularly amongst what is called youth culture. Uh, I mean, the anthem of my generation, if if you were around in 1998, you will have remembered Living Anne's Prisoner of Society. It was the fist-shaking, you know, chorus-belting song that screamed rebellion and anti-authoritarian. But it's not just them. You think of all of the punk rock bands that have done the same, Rise Against, Rage Against the Machine. If that's not your generation, go back to the 50s and think of Rolling Stones because I'm free to do what I want. You know, This is just the siren song of an anti-authoritarian youth culture generation. That's where we live. And so organizations and institutions that are hierarchical and authoritarian in nature have wrestled and struggled with what it looks like to be received in our culture. So the Defence Forces are a good example. In yesteryears, the Defence Force used to promote recruitment by saying, come and serve in the army as a sense of duty. Come and give yourself to protect our nation's borders. There were all of these dutiful, collective reasons for why you would do that. Now, promotion for the Defence Force has changed dramatically. I was watching an ad just last week for the Defence Force, uh, and the Army has a campaign at the moment called My Army. And this is how it goes, word for word. It says, in my army, I never stop learning. I do things I never thought I could. Visit places I never dreamed I'd visit. There is no limit to what I can achieve for myself. Long pause. And others. And it goes on in this vein. And then it finishes with the slogan across the TV Challenge yourself. For effect. Challenge yourself. You see, the whole tone of the conversation has changed. Recruitment is no longer about the collective, about your duty, about what you can do for this country, about what you can actually do for yourself. Because we exist in this world that is about. Me. Our world has dramatically changed. And as our world has changed, so has our position and our posture towards authority. Previously, generations ago, we lived in what was considered the predominant Judeo-Christian worldview. And in that worldview, there is a God. And because there is a God, there is a moral authority And because there is a God, there is a definite sense of truth and a source of knowledge and truth. And people who live with that worldview have a a moral framework to live by. They have a guide to live by. They have an authority in their life. Now we live in a secular culture, a secular age, where there is no God. There is no God, at least perceived that way. 
And because there is no God, therefore there is no moral authority. And so it becomes very difficult to determine what is right and what is wrong. It means that knowledge and truth are relative. There is no objective truth. There is no objective morality. There is no objective knowledge apart from those three statements, which are very objective in and of themselves. And the authority in our secular age is me. The first commandment of our generation is follow your heart. I am the authority in my life. But the problem is, we know how our hearts flip and flop and change. And we sometimes have this nagging sense of doubt around whether or not our hearts have actually been a good guide for us. As Alnada reminded us last week, when everyone in our culture believes that they are the center of the gravity of the universe, there becomes friction when they clash up against each other. In the West, what we have done is we have torn down, deconstructed and dismantled all of the traditional authority structures in our worldview. And in its place, we have erected the almighty self, me. Now that has shaped the church. You know, um, the pastor with their Masters of Divinity or Bachelor of Theology counts very little in this generation where I can be preaching and giving you a particular point of view on the Bible and you can sit there and Google an alternative view and dismiss what I've said on the spot without even having a conversation. Now, there's some good things about that, but it's just shaped and changed the way that the church perceives authority. In our era of individual of expressive individualism to have any form of external authority in your life is to deny your true self and so things like god and things like the bible they get relegated to a back seat and we put me on the throne and because of that paradigm the church then becomes a vehicle to help you fulfill your potential or to express yourself And when the church is failing to do that, you simply just go and find another one that will suit your needs. Belonging to a local church and committing to a community of people, even being accountable to spiritual leadership or accountable to a gospel community, those things are increasingly rare. The plot line of our Western narrative is the little guy who fights against the big institution and wins. Just think of... You know, Australia's most famous version of that narrative is the castle, right? The Kerrigans who take on the government and win, right? And that's the plot line of Western secularism. And it just so happens that the church is a big bad institution that the little guy needs to take on defeat and win. And so this narrative begins to shape the way we think about church and participate in church. And I want to suggest we're not immune to that at Anchor. None of us are. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that we return to an era of spiritual authoritarianism that led to all versions of spiritual abuse and of uh, pastors and leaders abusing their authority. And, you know, there's this famous line that says authority is like soap. The more you use it, the less you have. Um, I'm not suggesting we return to that sense of uh, entitled position and power and leadership from title. But what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that there are large forces at play that shape the way we think, including in the church, about authority. That's also true outside of the church as well. 
Mark Sayers, who's written the book that I can highly, highly recommend you read, Disappearing Church, says that the meteoric rise of anxiety and mental health that we are seeing in our culture today is an indication that our system is failing. He says it's the canary in the mine that is telling us something is wrong. For all of the promises that our secular age has offered us, it just does not seem to be delivering. And we are left disillusioned, we are left anxious, we are left depressed, we are left divided. We live in an era of tribalism. The great Ravi Zacharias, Christian apologist, says, It is like we're on the high seas battling the storms of conflicting worldviews without a compass. We just don't know how to solve this as a culture. Clashing worldviews, we're seeing it played out in front of our eyes every day. Now, I want to suggest to you at some point in your life, every single person, irrespective of your worldview, irrespective of your beliefs, needs a version of external authority in their life. We all need it. We need one that is life-giving. We need one that is going to lead to our flourishing. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not you. That the lies of our world that has placed you as the most important decision-making figure in your life, will let us down. I want to suggest to you that it's Jesus, in fact, who ought to be there. You know, being a Christian, by its very definition, means to be one who is under authority. Sort of means to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and reject the authority of a God over you. We are God's people and Jesus is our king and we bow our knee to him and we worship him and live our lives in reverent reverent obedience of him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so what I want to do this morning is show you that Jesus' authority is both all-consuming and good. Both all-consuming and good. So let's have a look at the first. Jesus' authority is all-consuming. Matthew 28 verse 18 says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. After his uh, resurrection, he commissions his disciples on the basis of this. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Me. Jesus is not given a measure of authority. He's not given a share of authority. He's not given a percentage of authority. He is given all authority. He does not share the throne. He has no rival. He has no equal. There are no challenges. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. And look at the scope there of his authority. He says, all authority on earth. All authority on earth. Authority over every government, yes, over every government. Authority over every ideology, over every ruler, over every single king on the face of this planet. But not only in the physical realm, also in the spiritual, Jesus has all authority in heaven over every angel, over every principality, and over every power. He has all authority. You know, we've been trying to help our kids understand the concept of how big Jesus is and how powerful Jesus is and how strong Jesus is. 
And we, I think it's sinking in because we have all sorts of random questions that come, particularly from our firstborn, about the power and authority of Jesus. Questions like, can Jesus run faster than Jimmy the Jet, who just happens to be one of the fastest players in the rugby league? Can Jesus jump over the Harbour Bridge? Can Jesus count to infinity? Uh, sorry, infinity. And of course, the answer is yes, 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 in their little minds. But consider what Paul says about Jesus in that verse that James read for us from Colossians chapter 1. This is what it says, staggering verses about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here at Anchor we have a big view of Jesus A staggeringly big view of Jesus. Do you see what these verses say? Verse 15, he is God made visible. He is God revealed to us. He is God in flesh. He is God stepping onto the stage of humanity and revealing and showing himself to us. Verse 16, 15 again, he is the firstborn of all creation. That's not to say that Jesus was a firstborn and James was a secondborn. It's not about birth order. It's a title. You see, the firstborn was the heir of the father's estate. And since Jesus has God as his father and the father owns the universe, Jesus stands to inherit it all. It means he owns it all. He controls it all. It's all his as the firstborn. Verse 16, he created all things. Everything that we see and touch, everything that is tangible and intangible, Jesus created. And that includes all forms of authority. Did you notice that? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, powers are all subject to King Jesus. He was created by him and for him, which means he stands above everything. Verse 17, it says that he is before all things. He is the eternal Son of God with no beginning and no end, existing from eternity past into eternity future the Alpha and the Omega, who is before everything, the first cause, if you like. Verse 18, he is the, sorry, verse 17 again, he sustains all things. Jesus holds the universe together. The reason that you woke up this morning and the laws of gravity worked and you breathed in oxygen and lived was because Jesus allowed that to happen. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. He is our true senior pastor. Jesus has the full and final authority on all matters to do with his people. And if we want to know whether or not we've surrendered ourselves to Jesus, we can measure that by the measure, by, by the way that we have surrendered ourselves to the authority of the word of God in our lives, because that is how Jesus exercises his authority in his church, by his word. Verse 19, he is divine. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of God's majesty and worth and beauty and magnificence and sovereignty and power and love 
exist in Jesus. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says, So spacious is he, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. We have a big view of Jesus. I mean, is there anyone as significant as this? He's God. He's powerful. He's creator. He has authority because of who he is and what he's done. And so in that respect, it's kind of irrelevant whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in this or not. If this is true, if Jesus is who the Bible claims he is, then he's entirely worthy of our worship and reverence and adoration and obedience. Excuse me for a sec. It means that Jesus is in charge of our whole life. Every part of it. Your family, your work, career, your finances, your choices, your decisions, your ambitions, your dreams, sexuality, your career, all of it. Jesus has authority over all of it. And he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. His authority is all-consuming. And this notion that has crept into the church as a result of this expressive individualism and this relativism that has bled into the church, this notion that I can choose which commands of Jesus to obey and which ones not to obey, it's ridiculous given who Jesus is, given the scope of his authority. We're like kids who at dinner are so full they couldn't possibly eat another thing. I could never possibly fit this thing into my life. But then when it comes to dessert, we're ravenous. Give me some of that. It's not compatible. That's not what following Jesus looks like. His commands are not a buffet option of things that we can pick which ones we like and leave the ones we don't. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all because his authority is all consuming. It's everything. It's everything. Nothing gets left out. To be a Christian means to come under the all-consuming authority of Jesus. That's, that's what it means. But my guess is for many of us, we have a, an innate fear when it comes to submitting ourselves to authority. And that is, authority tends to abuse. It's been our experience, has it not? As we think about authority in our world, when people are given authority, they tend to abuse it. They tend to take authority and it leads to corruption. It leads, it leads to the oppression of the poor and the weak. As Lord Acton said in the 18th century, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We simply don't trust authority. And if any nation has a sense of anti-authoritarianism, it is Australia, the nation colonized by convicts and criminals. And so when we're called to give all of ourselves and surrender everything to Jesus, is he safe? Is it good? Well, absolutely. Jesus' authority is not a domineering authority. It's a good 
authority. Yes, it's all-encompassing, but it is good. For Jesus, authority and leadership and power, they don't work like they do in the world. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus is traveling with his disciples and James and John have the boldness, let's say, to preemptively make a, a grab at power. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, and in their, in their framework, it's a political leader who kicks Rome out and begins to rule Israel. When you come into your kingdom, will you give us the two most important prominent positions in that kingdom? The other 10, when they hear this preemptive grab at power, are indignant. They cannot believe it. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus begins to school his disciples on what power, authority, and leadership looks like. This is what he says, Mark 10, 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That is, look around. We know how Rome occupies the, all, almost all of the known world with an iron fist, with heavy authority, by hanging people on the roads and highways and crucifying them as signs not to mess with us. Jesus says, you know how the Gentiles lord it over, exercise authority. Those are two heavily negative statements there. Verse 40, 43, but... It shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, Jesus has this countercultural, upside down, inverted, flipped view of what authority and power looks like. See, for most, authority and power is about people serving you. For Jesus, it's the opposite. He says, power and authority is given so that you might serve people. I don't know if you realize this, but um, the word prime minister means chief servant. Chief servant. That's why we call our uh, elected parliamentarians, um, what do we call them? Public servants. Thank you. Public servants, right? And the prime minister just happens to be the chief servant. And let's pray that our Political leaders and our prime ministers continue to do that, to serve the needs of the people, particularly of the poor and the needy. Power for Jesus is inverted. Authority is upside down. It is subversive. The greatest is the lowest. The first is last. And Jesus offers his life as an example of that. In Mark 10.45, he says this, continuing on, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, even Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, the one who created the world, the one who spoke existence into being, did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus offers his life, his blood shed on the cross in order to ransom, to purchase liberty for humanity that was under the bondage of sin and slavery to set us free. You know, a bit earlier in Mark's gospel, 
A couple of men, four men, bring a friend who is paralyzed to get healed by Jesus. And they can't quite get into the room where Jesus is teaching. And so they head up into the roof, break the roof open, and lower their friend on a mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus says a staggering thing in that moment. He looks down at this crippled man, knowing exactly what the four friends and this man want. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment... In the midst of all of the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, they see and hear what Jesus has just said, and their immediate response is blasphemy. Who is this man who dare utter forgiveness? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus responds with a question. He says, well, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. And Jesus heals the man. He heals the man to prove that he can do the external and the internal. Jesus has authority because he is God. He has authority because he created this world. And he has authority to deal with the mess and brokenness of this world because he is our Savior to forgive sins. If you're here this morning and call yourself a follower of Jesus, consider how shaped we are by our Western worldview. That we believe, in fact, that God exists for me. He becomes a divine butler to serve our needs. And there's an element of truth in that, that Jesus has come to serve us by dying for us. But he is not our butler. As a result, we offer our lives in wholehearted worship and service of him. He is our king. What would it look like for the church to renew its desire to surrender all of our lives to Jesus? What would it look like for the church to fully surrender to the lordship of Jesus? What would it look like for us to live lives of wholehearted repentance, bringing all of life under the increasing bringing our lives increasingly under the submission of King Jesus. The second thing is that now is not the time to lose confidence. We know the end of the story, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Our confidence is in him. But perhaps you're here this morning and you you wouldn't identify as a believer, a Christian. And you've reached a point in your life where you actually recognize that you need a form of external authority. You don't know what that is. I want to suggest to you this morning, it's Jesus. If it's not you, then who is it? Who can you trust? Whose authority is good enough and whose authority is all-encompassing enough to offer your life to? There is no one else but Jesus. What I want to do now is transition to a time of response for every single one of us as we reflect on our lives And prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That we would increasingly surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. And so with every eye closed and head bowed in this room now, I want to take a moment to pause and reflect on our lives. To pause and reflect on our worship. And perhaps there are some here this morning who have recognized that they have swallowed the narrative of this world that says God exists to serve you. He's your butler. That you've been picking and choosing from things that you like and don't like. That you haven't been giving Jesus the reverence he deserves.
And today you want to surrender. Perhaps you're here this morning and for the first time you've recognized that Jesus does deserve your worship, your reverence, your awe, your submission. That you've placed you on the throne of your life for so long and it's not working. That you need a good, all-encompassing authority. You need a guide. You need a map to live by. And Jesus is just that. And today you want to surrender your life to him. Or perhaps today you just want a new commitment. A fresh resolve to continue to put Jesus first. And you want to surrender your life to him. Wherever you're at, I want to encourage you to pray a prayer of repentance along with me. As we prepare for Lord's Supper together, let's pray. Father God, we want to continue to bring our lives and surrender them at your feet. Jesus, we know that you are good. We thank you that you've given us the ultimate model of what it looks like. We thank you that your authority is all-encompassing. And if we're honest, God, we know that there are parts of our life, or perhaps all of our life, that we have been in control of. And this morning, we want to surrender all of that to you. And we want to pray this in the strong, powerful, beautiful, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.